You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wine, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, JT Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit hankgarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is. Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I am so excited to welcome Gregory McGuire to the show. He has an amazing new book. Um, if if you have not been asleep for the last, I don't know, couple of decades, you are probably familiar with, with lots of Gregory's work. Um, today, he revisits the world of Wicked and, uh, and, and launches a new book called The Brides of Maricour, a novel – Another day, book one. Uh, is this a new series that you're starting, Gregory? It it is a new series, and Hank, I I liken it to uh, the relationship to my the four books in in the Wicked Years, which is the series that included and started with Wicked about the Wicked Witch of the West. Uh, I liken it to the relationship to the way Fraser was a kind of descendant and an appendage of Cheers. But sure. became its own thing. Uh, Another day uh, starts actually about a week, I think, after the end of the Wicked Years, but it focuses on a different character, the granddaughter of the Wicked Witch of the West, and a different. It's it it, it begins at least in a different setting, Maracor. I love it. Um, I have so many questions I want to ask you, but. We begin each show with the same question, and we have to get this out of the way before we can dig into uh, to the Brides of Maricor. What is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? When I was about five, uh, I being the middle child in a family of seven children and the middle boy in a family of five boys, I realized that I was happiest on Sunday afternoons uh, sitting with my knees under the coffee table in the proximity of my parents, drawing and coloring and using homemade paste out of flour and water and scissors and, and assembling bits and pieces of words and pictures and stories to make something new. This was partly because I really did have and do have a creative bent, I like to think, but also because I wanted to distinguish myself, I think, from my four brothers who were all rowdy, cheery, good-natured, law-abiding boys living a boyish life. And (laughs) I was not that particular kind of child. I liked being – I didn't like being told to go outside and play. I wanted to stay inside in my atelier and get something serious done <laughs> at the age of five. So I think before I actually knew that that where that my heart would call me to to creating stories, I was already creating things, whether they were you know dioramas of the slaughter of the innocents, or I was writing plays about the first. Thanksgiving, where it was finally revealed that the Pilgrims were actually Catholic. Uh, you know, I just had lots and lots of ideas, and I got to work putting them together 
in childhood, really as young as five, but uh, by the time I was in eighth grade, I had a, a long history and I was well known in the community as being the kid who made things, whether I <laughs> wrote plays, I, I co-opted the, the, uh, the nuns' um, lunchroom for whatever I could find for supplies for the backgrounds of my plays, and, and I wrote stories, and I wrote songs and song cycles. And I just couldn't be stopped because anything anybody else could do, I wanted to try to do it too. That is in terms of making things, making anything except maybe a basket or a touchdown. That I wasn't interested in. <laughs> I, I love the way that you likened um, Another Day, uh, the, the new series, to Frasier and how Frasier was kind of a spinoff of Cheers, um, and and Frasier absolutely stood as its own thing, but if you were clued into the world of Cheers from the early 80s, um, which I was, and, and watched it religiously when it came on, um, then when, when Frasier spun out of that, Frasier absolutely stood on its own, but if you were clued in to the world of Cheers, it added a little context um, that made the story richer, deeper, or or maybe it was just, you know, feeling like you were in an exclusive club um, in in some weird way. Um, I, I love how you say that another day is kind of like that because the wicked years was kind of like that as well. Um, absolutely rooted in in Frank Baum's uh, world of Oz, uh, but stood on its own. But if you had the rest of that story, that context. It, uh, it it was deeper, richer, and became another thing. Um, how do you feel about, um, well, obviously you're, you're a fan of continuing stories that we're familiar with, but what, what do you think about, uh, you know, taking someone's work, building on it, opening up the world and atmosphere? Well, you know, I think what you're talking about is contextualization. In sure. Sense. And, of, of course, we come to the story, and any of us who were born in the decade I was born in, which was the 50s, uh, come to the story of The Wizard of Oz with our primary experience being the 1939 film. Right. Those of us who were bookish uh, went back to check primary sources and, and read The Wizard of Oz if we were library goers or if we could find it. But most of us know the story through the movie. Uh, and Therefore, when it was time, when it came time for me to write Wicked, and I decided I was going to do it many, you know, many years ago, almost 30 years ago now, uh, I had in mind both the original novel, because I had read it many times, and the film, which I had seen many, many times, probably the film I had seen the most often in my life up to that point. Uh, and so I knew I was going to be carrying into my own apprehension of this strange land, an appetite to deepen it, to enrich it, enrich it, to make sense of it, but also to import into it uh, some other kinds of mystery that Baum and MGM uh, shied away from. In other words, I almost wanted to tokenize it, if you will. Sure. I wanted to. I wanted to turn Oz from a movie set and a kind of nonsense fable, which is where it began in 1900 and 1939, into a land 
that had a history and had cultural complications and had racism and had, had varying sectarian beliefs that didn't necessarily make for friendly neighbors and, and collaborative societies. Uh, in other words, I wanted to make it more like the world in which we live, even if it is a world in which occasionally there's a bolt of magic that uh, shivers through it and changes what readers and the author himself might expect to have seen. Gregory, one of the things that I love about digging through your back catalog and looking at all of the stories that you've written and 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 brought to the world is you seem it seems to me that you have a love of um, uh, of fantasy stories, but ones that we um, generally tend to think of as children's fantasy or, um, you know, um, younger fantasy. Uh, but the way you approach the material and the care and the imagination that you put into it, you take these stories very seriously and you then challenge us to take them seriously and to look deeper and to look at, uh, you know, that maybe there's there's more context to it. Um, and you challenge us to contextualize these these stories uh, to to borrow your words. Um, what is it? What what is your initial fascination with uh, with this type of fantasy? Well, Hank, the the truth is, in many many ways, I had uh, a textbook happy childhood with a father and a mother and all those brothers and sisters and. If we didn't have a whole lot of money, well, whoever said money was necessary for happiness, right. uh, it really didn't. It didn't really have that much to do with how secure or how happy we felt, how pleased we were to be getting an education and uh, to be surviving and growing and living in a world that, at the time, we thought was going to go on forever, unchangeable. Uh, and uh, and yet, and yet, underneath that that apprehension of childhood, the reality is that there was a lot of sadness in my childhood life. Uh, one part was probably recognizing that, uh, even though I didn't know the terms of the concepts, that uh, there was a reason I wasn't going out and playing football with the boys, you know, that I was going to be a different kind of kid. And I suppose I could sense some isolation uh, and some possibly a harder path to find to walk in my life successfully uh, because it wasn't necessarily being shown me by my parents or the nuns and priests and librarians and good people around me who who took care of me and and uh, tried to raise me up proper I could tell that as a as a man who's going to be a gay man I probably uh, I probably felt marginalized even in my own life in some ways what therefore the library did for me and especially the library that showed me books that at the time I called magic books. I didn't even know the literary term fantasy. I just called them magic books. This is a book where magic happens. Sometimes it was domestic magic like Mary Poppins or Set or Half Magic by Edward Yeager. Uh, other times it was science fiction-y like Madeline Lengel's A Wrinkle in Time. Otherwise, it was other times it was world building like C.S. Lewis and Narnia. Uh, or other stories like the fairy tales that seem to take place in their whole different universe. Whenever I went to the library, I gravitated toward those books that showed me you can 
you know, with your imagination, you can really kick down the prison walls of everything it is that you think is boxing you in. And you can find yourself heroes who get through crises that are other than those that you're being taught to get through, like proper dental hygiene. And can you go out and actually do a little boyish roughhousing, please? It's about time you're 10 years old, you know, shape up, shape up, mister. Um, Fantasy showed me you could actually fly out the you could fly out of the nursery, you know, with your with your fellow spirits. Uh, fantasy showed me you could push through the wardrobe or drop down the the rabbit hole, and then find a world in which you had to make up the logic for yourself. You had nothing to rely on but your own perceptions and the good heartedness of the people you found outside uh, outside your kindly meant prison walls. All children live in prison. I'm not saying I was any different, but I am saying that fantasy in some ways kept me mentally sound and writing kept me mentally sound. And therefore, when I grew up, uh, I thought and began to write seriously, I thought, what could I do better than pay homage to all these writers who were my companions in my loneliness, like L. Frank Baum and uh, Hans Christian Andersen and the Brothers Grimm and uh, many, many others. And that's really what my adult work has been. It has never been to parody or to cut down or to declare that an original author was in some way telling a lie. It's always been to honor the original material, but look at it with the sober eyes of, of an adult artist. I love that answer. That was uh, that was the best description of of what fantasy um, brings to the table uh, that that I think I've ever heard. Um, Gregory, I, I think I've heard you talk before about what initially drew you to the world of Wicked when when you decided to create. Um, or, or to to expand on on this universe in your own way. Um, would would you mind telling us what what it was that in, in it, if I remember right, it's it's kind of an odd juxtaposition of the real world on to the fantastical world. Um, what initially brought you to to this world? Well, there there are several things, and and since I know you, this is not an eight hour podcast, I'll really try to. Try. <laughs> I'll try to trim my answer. Uh, one thing was uh, that my parents being very strict, uh, watching TV was severely uh, limited to us. And the annual rebroadcast of The Wizard of Oz uh, on TV was part of our liturgical calendar, you might almost say. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, But then I, I, I moved to London I had done graduate work. I had taught children's literature. I had actually written a dissertation on children's fantasy uh, for my PhD. Uh, but I moved to London and the Gulf War started. And uh, I remember seeing headlines that said, Saddam Hussein, the next Hitler. And I remember it, my blood freezing and thinking Hitler must be about the scariest word in the English language because even I, who is uh, philosophically a pacifist, thought, well, who of us, if we had a, a time capsule, wouldn't have gone back and tried to, you know, push Hitler down the stairs when he was a tender child and save the world from all his deprivations and his his murderous intent. Uh, sure. And so, um, so I, but I started thinking about the strength of the word Hitler 
and about how we use that as a way to connote uh, about the worst evil we can imagine. At the same time, something evil really did happen, which is that a two-year-old boy uh, who wandered away from his mother's apron strings in a shopping center in Birmingham, England, uh, was found by somebody else and was murdered by the end of the day. There was a manhunt for the proposed, the assumed murderers, and then it became clear that the murderers were actually boys, schoolboys who had started the day playing hooky and not going to school, and by the end of the day had become murderers. Uh, this was a famous case, the case of Jamie Bulger. And because at that time the boys' identities were, were not restricted to the press, once they were discovered, uh, all of England went into high chatter mode to discuss the history of these boys and whether or not they were culpable. I mean, they, they, they did the act, but in what ways could they be culpable being so young, being 11 and 14? And one of them was cognitively a little bit impaired. Uh, how could they become murderers by the end of the day? How do people decide and become capable of doing evil things? The combination of the evil on the, on the world stage and the evil you know, in a shopping mall where two boys suddenly turn into murderers it was so capsizing to me in my head, living in London as I was doing at the time, that I decided I had to address the, the topic in writing. I had, to address, I had to address the question of evil, just like St. Augustine, uh, but I would do it in fiction because that's the only thing I know how to do. And very quickly I decided the most efficient way to do it would be to take a character that everybody already knew was wicked and kind of unpack him or her. Uh, and so shortly after I thought, well, everybody says, write what you know. All I know is children's books, really. Uh, I mean, that's what I know well and deeply. And the Wicked Witch of the West appeared to me in a blinding flash of green light as she came down from the clouds in heaven. <laughs> and I'd, my whole life as a good Catholic, I'd expected it would be the Virgin Mary who would finally pay a call, but it wasn't. It was Margaret Hamilton. And she was saying, I'll get you and your little dog, too. And I thought, if to each of us is vouchsafed one moment of genius in this lifetime, I have just had mine. Because everybody knows who the Wicked Witch of the West is, and neither Baum nor, El nor MGM gave her any kind of a backstory. So nobody can say I got it wrong. The world is my oyster, and I'm going to find out who she was and how she became who she ended up being. Dabble is a proud sponsor of Author Stories. Dabble is an easy-to-use cloud-based writing tool that gives writers a way to organize, plot, and create amazing stories wherever they are. Write in our desktop app on your Mac or Windows computer, tablet, or mobile device. Dabble syncs your latest version with the cloud on all your devices. Write anywhere and anytime inspiration strikes. We got you. Dabble is my preferred writing tool, and I think it will be yours as well. Visit DabbleWriter.com for your free trial. You have an amazing story idea. You execute the writing and editing flawlessly, and now the only thing missing are readers. We can help you go from author to author superhero with Story Origin. Story Origin is a one-stop shop for marketing tools with a community of amazing authors working together to find reviewers, build mailing lists, increase sales, and collect feedback from beta readers. Everything an author needs, all in one place from providing review copies or beta copies 
Reader magnets to ensure you stay connected with readers, easily distribute audio promo codes, universal retail links to send readers directly to the proper point of purchase, or provide direct download links for members of your mailing list. Story Origin has all the tools you need in one easy-to-use site. Use the promo code ASP21 at checkout when subscribing to the yearly plan, and you will get 10% off your first year. This code will expire December 31st, so hurry over and subscribe now. StoryOriginApp.com That that story of uh, the name Hitler uh, bringing about such um, such strong emotions. Uh, I, I'm I wonder if if it if it's not for him um, that mid twentieth century stories um, tended to to lean very black and white. Um, bad guys were bad guys because they were bad. Um, good guys were good guys because they were good. Um, and you know, not a lot of, um, uh, thought needed to go into that. Um, but you know, as, as time has progressed, um, there's a, there's a trend to, um, to try to understand evil in the world. And, um, your, your stories have, have given us, um, a way to, to, to come to grips with, with the things that scared us as kids. Um, what do you think about, um, the idea of peeling back the layers of evil to find humanity? I think it's a, I think it is a necessary, um, it's a requirement of being a functioning adult citizen with a moral compass to say, I need always to examine the parameters of what I think. Now, that doesn't mean that I need to forgive everybody all their behavior, and it doesn't mean that I don't have the right to um, to, to pass judgment, at least in my own thinking, about what somebody else's behavior is. I do have that right, but I have no right to do it without using heart, mind, and brains, you know, that you have to yeah. bring everything you have to bear, your strengths as a human being. You have to bring it to the question and ask the question. You are not allowed merely to answer the question that other people have asked. You have to ask it for yourself. Now, this, in a way, brings me to the Brides of Maricor, because the wicked years uh, started with Elphaba, the Wicked Witch of the West, continued in Son of a Witch with the story of of the son she and Fierro had named Lear and concluded at the end of four volumes with Lear's daughter being born green, just like her grandmother and being named Rain. And uh, eventually Rain in her late teenage years deciding she was going to rid all of Oz of that treacherously potent weapon, the Grimmery, which is the book of magic. Uh, and she was going to uh, escort it out of Oz, and that's why the book was called Out of Oz, and she was going to get rid of it and liberate the country from uh, any more damage it might ever do. Uh, when I wrote that book, Out of Oz, I wanted to kind of indicate to my readers that not only is rain out of Oz, not only is this news out of Oz, the way Isaac Dennison wrote Out of Africa, um, but also I am out of Oz. I've written <laughs> roughly, uh, you know, 2,500 pages of this saga 
and I am done. Uh, I am out of it. There's nothing left in the bucket. Uh, when I would say this sometimes at book readings, of course, kids who had taken the books to themselves, even though, I mean, teenagers, even though they were written and published for adults, you know, I remember one kid raising and said, well, why don't you write some more? And I said, because it's called The Wicked Years and The Wicked Years are done. The witch is gone and even her granddaughter is gone. And so this kid said, well, why don't you write another series called The Happy Years? <laughs> and I thought, the Happy Years. Well, I laughed. I said, thank you. That's a really good idea. But 10 years later, in the heart of the pandemic, I began to think, I'm worried about everybody in the pandemic. I'm worried even about people that don't like, like, are you safe? Are you well? Are you okay? Are you holding on? What's going on? And I began to worry about my, my, my character, Rain, who was 18 or 19, and had left the shores of Oz in order to do a terrible, terribly difficult job, which was to destroy the book of magic that had so came come so close to destroying her own life. Uh, and I began to worry about her. So I thought, well, it can't be the happy years because for one thing, who would pick <laughs> volume one of the happy years? Uh, yeah, I sure wouldn't. Uh, but then I thought, I don't want to be so big. I won't do years. I'll just do a day. I'll say, if the Wicked series, which take which takes place in over an 85 year sequence is the Wicked years, this one will be a more domestic product. This will be a three book series called Another Day. And its title comes from Rain, rain, go away, come again, another day. The old nursery rhyme. My main character's named Rain, and at the end of Out of Oz, she did go away. Well, what's she's going to do when she's away, and how, and when, and if, is she going to be able to manage to get back? That's what another day is about, and that's where the Brides of Maricourt starts. Brilliant. I love that. Um, Gregory, I'm picking up on on a theme here. Um, that that great stories are born out of um, personal struggle, um, un, um, unsettling times. Um, that 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 gets your creativity uh, looking for ways to to cope and to deal and to make sense of the things that we're seeing and hearing. Um, it, is that really what, what fantasy is a way for us to put, um, to, to deal with the tangible and intangible ways? I, I think it is for me. Now, a lot of people don't like to read fantasy and I can understand that. And, and uh, God, there's people that love fantasy though. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we're not worrying with those other people. Right. <laughs> no, but I, but, but I think so. For me, certainly, um, I have gone back to vast, the vast um, metaphorical landscape of Oz in order both to escape the troubling reality of uh, the United States of America in the years in which I'm living, and in order to face what is wrong with it too, because fantasy is is a is a mirror, it's a metaphor, and it's it's a device for distraction, but also uh, scrutiny. Um, I'm, I'm not thinking of the right verb. You know, the, the focusing of the lens is, it, you know, I, I think there's, there's a phrase I read once in an anthropologist's uh, memoir. It said something like, the art of the understand, of anthropology, cultural anthropology is the art of understanding 
the self through the detour of the understanding of the other. Now, that makes it very self-serving, doesn't it? Like the other <laughs> in order to um, in order to help us understand ourselves. Nonetheless, that basically um, we are egocentric creatures on the planet on our two feet. Um, and we do start from our egos and ourselves. We are the radius. We are the, we are the omphalos each of our own lives. And we do have to look out at the other in order to understand ourselves and also in order to understand them. Fantasy, I think, is particularly well devised to help us do this. So, for instance, when Abu Ghraib came up and I thought I was going to go mad with anger, fear and regret, uh, I went back to Oz and I wrote Son of a Witch because I thought if I don't look at how injustice, cruelty and uh, a certain authoritative rottenness works someplace else, I'm not going to be able to bring that understanding back with me to look at my own life and world the next time I open the Sunday paper. Very, very well put. Um, Gregory, what is it like to to watch something that you've created? Um, and, and I'm talking about Wicked, then become an entirely different cultural phenomenon uh, with uh, with with the success that Wicked has, has had on Broadway. And and I think a lot of people probably come to your books through the uh, through the stage production, because uh, you know when they when they go to see it and and they love it, and then they realize, oh, this is a whole world. This is a whole series of books. I want to I want to you know dive headlong into them. What is it like as a writer, as a creator, to then see the thing that you've created take on different forms and get bigger than than probably you ever could have imagined? Of definitely bigger than I ever could have imagined, and indeed bigger than <laughs> bigger than the producers or the stars of that show, and the, the composer and the book writer Winnie Holtzman uh, ever could have imagined. It it outperformed um, every expectation uh, uh, by uh, you know by a factor of about ten. Um, mostly, Hank, I think I I try not to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, I have, um, I was very lucky. I've been, I have been lucky in my life in many, many ways. And one way in which I was lucky is that just as the play was beginning to open on Broadway and the book had already been successful. It had come close to selling a million copies over a five year period before the play opened or, or maybe it was more eight years, I guess. Which uh, is an incredible feat all its own. Yes, exactly. And it was, it was word of mouth. It never it never was a um, immediate bestseller or anything. It actually yeah. was a sleeper. It, 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 it built its own audience and people passed it around. People and, liked it. it was and that's the wonderful best thing. way, isn't it? That, that really is the best. Um, but in 2003, when the play was opening, I had, um, I had three adopted children under the age of seven. And so I had... I mean, Wicked was wonderful in that it gave me the financial security to feel I could um, adopt a family of my own uh, with my partner. Uh, but on the other hand, the children were wonderful because they kept me grounded. It's it's really terrific to be able to 
swan down to New York and pose on the red carpet and occasionally be recognized in, in restaurants or see see Broadway people across the room and and you know blow air kisses at them just like you're Andy Cohen or something. But in fact, that doesn't put Cheerios on the table. And that doesn't get, you know, the dentist visited. And so my my kids being exactly the age that they were when my world kind of blew up into hyper-reality was a very stabilizing influence for me. And I I adopted them not as accoutrements to my fabulous life, but because I wanted to be a father and I wanted to take care of them. And not because I could suddenly afford to have a nanny didn't mean that I thought a nanny was the healthiest way to go. And I didn't. I wanted my partner and I wanted to raise them. And we did. And we have raised them. And we still are. And so it was, you know, again, like, luckily, I had these anchors. I had three sets of of milk teeth chomped on my ankles, keeping me to the ground when I might otherwise have flown off and become uh, more bombastic even than I am naturally. And that, that was all to the good. So has, has having children uh, changed you as a creative person? You know, if you were going to just go by that rubric, I would have to say, I'm going to bring the kids back to the countries from which they came because it's been a total bust. (laughs) (laughs) They have not. They have not. Luckily, I didn't get them for material. (laughs) I didn't didn't buy them. Come on, stimulate these juices. You're not doing your job. (laughs) Uh, They have not. And I think that's because the work of raising them is, to me, and I don't mean to sound officious if I use the word morally or ethically, but to me, it's just so fundamentally more important that it, that work exists in a whole different plane of my existence than uh, than the pleasant operation of my creativity. You know, that's far more important work. And so now they haven't. I mean, occasionally one of them said something funny and I would write it down or or one of them would ask an amusing question. I thought, I don't really know how to answer that. Maybe there's a story in that. But in general, no, uh, they they have. And I I confess, it's a good question, Hank, because I was a little surprised at that. I thought, oh, now now that I have an inbuilt audience, maybe my writing, because I write for children as well, maybe my writing will will really like spruce up and 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 take off, and I'll suddenly have a I'll suddenly have a, a keyhole view at child psychology. No, I had a keyhole view of my own children who do not represent childhood; they represent themselves, and that's all. Well, I think that's a very healthy answer. I, I love that. Um, the new book. You say this will be a a three book series. Do you have the trajectory of the story kind of mapped out and and know where the story is going? I certainly do. In fact, I have I have uh, the second two books uh, drafted, at least in in some form. The second book is uh, I'm about ready to do the final draft to send it to the publisher. And the third book is um, as, as I've taken it through one draft, but I probably won't begin uh, to revise it for six or nine months. Uh, so yes, I know where the story is going, has gone, and where it, how it will conclude. Of course, like all stories, unless you're in a fairy tale, which which can get away with a phrase called happily ever after, like all stories that have any hope of engaging the reader with human truths, the ending of the story has to 
and in a little bit of a of a mystery, a little bit of an unknown, because our lives are always filled with questions, no matter how old we are. We don't really know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't even know, even if we're in hospice, we don't really know what dying is going to feel like. So I, even in a fantasy cycle, I don't like leaving the story with all the questions answered because then it gets locked in and you deprive the humanity of the of your characters to stumble, fall, discover, grow, suffer, rejoice, uh, on into the time beyond when you can still see them on the horizon. I want my characters, even if they're fantastic talking lions or geese or whatever, I want them to seem real, which means they must have agency, they must have ambiguity, um, they must have a great degree of ignorance about what the future is going to be like, because that's what proves they are alive. And that's how we know we're alive, too. And I, I love that when when a story does not completely wrap up, you know, everything is 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 tidied up with a bow and and we're, you know, um, and the author you know closes the the back cover of that story so to speak and and that's all there is to say about it um i I love it when when an author allows me to 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 keep pondering with a character and and to uh in in my mind uh allows the the story to continue in a in a certain way um that that's one of the great gifts of of storytelling I think it is, and and I, I should make the distinction, Hank, that, of course, there are satisfactions of stories that are pertinent to children that are um, that would, would be false if offered to, to adults. And that's because we stand in a different relationship to the flow of time than children do. Um, children are eternal because they don't really know yet about finitude or finitude. Um, and so they live in an eternal now. We are saddled with knowledge of our own of our own demise, and therefore we live within a much riskier approximation of, of what any potential future might be. Because of that, we crave it. And so to leave characters capable of having a future beyond which even the reader can know is to leave them alive. We want to leave our children alive when we, when we die. We want to leave the people we have loved in stories alive to get on with their lives, whether or not we can follow them. Very well put. Um, if if people have been fans of your work in the past and the, the wicked years, and they then come to the Brides of Maricor and the new series Another Day, what what are you telling people that they can expect from from this journey that you're going to take them on? Well, The Brides of Maricour is uh, set in a world that's very unlike Oz. If you can imagine, and now I'm just making making something up. Well, yeah, imagine Commodore Perry uh, going around across the Pacific Ocean and landing in Japan uh, and discovering a culture that was ripe and ancient and full of itself and had almost no reference points with the culture of the developed West, the United States and, and Western Europe particularly. Um, that disconnect between cultures uh, is terribly vigorous 
and exciting and problematic um, encounter. So in The Brides of Maricor, what I love doing, what's been really fun, is to find that when Rain, uh, Alphago's granddaughter, goes across the ocean and actually washes ashore on an island populated by seven unmarried females who have spent their whole lives since infancy upon this island, um, she discovers a culture that is that is so different from us that there really are no there are no cognates that she can pull up. There is a a similarity in language which uh, the characters learn to maneuver around. So there must have been some original language that both cultures spoke because after some effort they can understand one another. Uh, but it's as but Maricor is as different from Oz as. Japan in the early part of the 19th century was from Washington, D.C. or London at the same period. The Brides of Maricor, Another Day, Book One, is available everywhere now. When you're hearing this, uh, there are links to it in the show notes of this episode where you can grab it in Kindle edition or hardcover. Um, and you definitely want a hardcover of this book because y- you want to display this on your shelf um, for everyone to see and to loan out to nieces and nephews and, and all of that great stuff. Um, Gregory, it uh, have you listened to the audiobook um, of of, uh, of The Brides of Maricor? I, I have not yet been sent a copy. I can't wait to I can't wait to hear it. Have you heard it yet? I have not, but uh, I'm I'm expecting uh, I'm expecting an arc of it any day now, and I'm I'm excited to 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 now hear you know it acted out, and because uh, audiobooks are are always a, a different experience, and and uh, I can't wait. I can't I can't wait either. I'm really I'm really affected. I'm I'm going to run downstairs and look in the mailbox when we're done. <laughs> Excellent. Well, uh, Gregory, this has been so much fun chatting. Thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. If if people are just discovering you and your work, God forbid, um, where can they find you online if they want to dig into all the great stuff that you do? I do have a website, www.gregorymaguire.com. Maguire is spelled, if you remember that old film, Jerry Maguire, show me the money. <laughs> uh, Maguire is spelled the same way, M-A-G-U-I-R-E. Uh, but you, if you forget that, you say, "What was that? What was that bozo's name?" Well, just write, <laughs> just type in "Wicked" the novel, and it will bring up my name. Then you know. I think I have about forty books done over a forty-five year period, and uh, they're books for children as well as for adults. And there are fantasies as well as uh, science fiction and realistic fiction and picture books. So something for the whole family. Excellent. We'll link up all of that in the show notes to uh, to help people find you and your work. Uh, Gregory, I love the new book. I love everything that you're doing. Um, thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. Gee, Hank, thanks so much. You have some great questions, I have to say. I don't I don't always say that, but um, uh, but I'm saying it now because it's true. Now stay tuned for an audiobook excerpt from Richard Gleaves, the Jason Crane series. Once and the goal, Hulda said. Land full of witches. Witches in the sky, in the trees, witches down the well. Justine, a great witch. Many herbs, many friends. One day, curse fall. Everyone die, everyone who believe in Hexa. 
1692. Hidden, the knowledge is. The appointed hide it. <laughs> A great curse cast in Salem that year. Legion, she cast curse to kill the day world. In New Amsterdam they not know, only see. Everyone die. What for? They blame Justine. Chased her off. She come here, I think. Hide from witch hunters. You, her blood. Possibly Hulda was correct. I was a witch, just as she was. She promised my magic would come once I was a woman. I cannot say by what steps I came to believe Hulda's seductive promises of power, but I do know the moment when I chose to be a witch, irrevocably and with my whole heart. On the Sunday that Cornelia Van Cortland became Cornelia Beekman, the newly wedded pair made their first public appearance at church, their coming out, as was the custom, so that our poor congregation could thoroughly enjoy the spectacle of her bridal finery. The pair arrived late, with the whole bridal party in wedding array. Cornelia wore fawn-colored silk over a light blue damask petticoat. Gerard wore a waistcoat of the same and a long coat of white broadcloth. After services, the Beekmans graciously shared the leftovers of their wedding feast, serving chicken and ale to the congregation, outside among the graves of the old burying ground. The day was pleasant and the grass sweet. The tenant farmers and peasant wives stood all hunched about, licking their fingers and making little bows of deference. Cornelia held a bouquet of orange blossoms to her cheek, and everyone agreed that she was the most beautiful young lady in all creation, married to the most good-natured and remarkable man. That will be you someday, my mother whispered. The sun kissed Gerard's forehead as he reached into his purse and showered the graveyard with coins. All my neighbors fell to their knees at the couple's feet, scrabbling for pennies. Only I remained unbent. I stood, staring daggers into Cornelia as she accepted a surreptitious kiss from her beautiful husband. Oh, that kiss in the graveyard a perfect kiss of love and devotion and tribute. She noticed my expression of pain and mistook it for disappointment. Did you not get a penny, dear? She said, smiling. Here you go. She threw her bouquet of orange blossoms to me. I caught it and gave her a tiny bow. Yes, I thought, that would be me someday. I crushed the bouquet to my heart and swore my oath. Cornelia would not win. She was no better than I. I was special, too. I wore no emeralds. I wore no silk. But I trailed fireflies. I deserved such a perfect kiss. I deserved such a perfect man. And if I could not win a god by grace... I would seize one by sorcery. <laughs>